All right, grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And get excited because we're talking about suffering again. (laughs) Uh, We spoke last week about the major theme of 1 Peter, identifying it as holiness under pressure. As Peter is calling his readers to be holy as the Father is holy, but in the midst, in the context of various trials that he knows that they're experiencing. He doesn't give them a pass on holiness because they've got rough circumstances. Rather, he anticipates that those rough circumstances are actually going to enhance their holiness. That in fact, that's God's point and purpose in having called them to that suffering. We can see that for Peter's readers, the pressure that they were under, the trials that they were grieved by, had to do with living life under tyranny. We've talked about this to some degree and at some length. They were under the tyranny of their pagan government. Some of them were under the tyranny of pagan masters. Some of them were under the tyranny of pagan husbands. They were living life under tyranny, and it's in that context that they're called to holiness. Now, for many of us, our trials are less cumbersome than life under that sort of obvious and overt tyranny. But our trials are no less important to our spiritual development though they may, on a scale, be less severe. Because as we established last week, there's no conformity to the image of Christ without some familiarity with the sufferings of Christ. But notice that Peter is very careful in his letter not to address our suffering without first contextualizing it or situating it in relationship to Christ's suffering. Peter doesn't want us thinking about our suffering in a way that's disconnected from Christ's suffering. Which is why in a letter written to suffering believers, he mentions Christ's suffering six times. That being more than he even acknowledges the suffering of those to whom he's writing. He's staving off pity parties, undue introspection and despondency by keeping the focus where it belongs, namely on Christ. So in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 11, the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, we're ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, which he suffered pouring out for us. In 1 Peter 2, 21, we're called to suffer because Christ also suffered, leaving us an example. 1 Peter 4, 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then there's our text for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter is insisting that we think about our suffering in light of Christ's suffering. And he's insisting that there's a connection between our suffering and Christ's suffering. So what light is Christ's suffering intended to shed on our suffering? And what's the connection between Christ's suffering and our suffering? Is Peter bringing up Christ's suffering as a backhanded way of saying, get over it because your suffering's not as bad as Christ's was? Is, is that his point? 
Now, there are some officious people who will always respond to your suffering with a comparative analysis. You've met these people, right? As if the knowledge that some other schmuck has it worse than you is somehow going to help you navigate your own suffering because it's not as bad as it could be, right? But of course, that's not helpful. Imagine if Pastor Luke and I took that approach in our counseling. Pastor, my marriage is just going downhill and I don't know how to fix it. And then Luke says, nah, man, Joe's marriage is miserable. All right, now that, that's a bad marriage. Until you approach that level, I don't even have compassion for you because Joe's got it bad. Get out of my office, right? No, that, that's, that's not what Peter is doing. That's not why he's bringing up Christ's suffering. He isn't invalidating or minimizing their suffering by bringing up Christ's suffering. He's doing something far more substantive and far more pastoral than that in continuing to centralize Christ's suffering in getting them to think about their own. In bringing up Christ's suffering in relation to their suffering, Peter's turning the lights on in an otherwise dark room so that they can see what's really going on. He's exposing the purpose and plan of God in their suffering by connecting it to Jesus' suffering. But before we get into those details, we need to trace out the different kinds of suffering that we may endure because your suffering personally may or may not fit into the category of suffering that Peter is comparing to Christ's. You see, sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. Many of us blaze the trail that leads to our own suffering by way of our rebellion against God. We refuse to align ourselves with God's ways, so we suffer the consequences of that misalignment. When God says right and we go left, we ought not be surprised when in going left, we fall into a pit, find ourselves surrounded by briars or caught in quicksand or some other horrible fate. He said to go right for a reason. But that kind of suffering is decidedly not what Peter has in mind. He's talking, quote, in verse 17 about suffering for doing good, for righteousness sake. He's not talking about tasting the bitterness of bad fruit that we planted ourselves. That's not to say that God doesn't have grace and compassion for that. That's not to say that people can't help you out of that as you repent and identify those sins for what they are. It's just to say that's not what Peter's talking about in this text. Sometimes we suffer as a result of natural disasters, what theologians typically call natural evil as opposed to moral evil, which is just to say that it's different to lose a loved one to a hurricane than it is to a homicide. Right? These are categorically different things which constitutes another category of suffering we could experience, that being that we might suffer as a result of someone else's sin. Someone sins against us. Other people's sin is, in fact, the problem with our modern notion that everyone can pursue their own happiness, live their own truth, and we can have a live-and-let-live sort of mentality toward life. It's only a matter of time, a very short period of time, before me trying to live my best life infringes upon Jody trying to live his best life because what makes me happy might make all of you unhappy. In which case, what do we do? Imagine live and let live playing out in your house. All right, it's family movie night, but I don't want to impose anything on anyone. This is a live and let live household wherein we infringe upon no one so we need to come to a consensus about what we're going to watch by means of a civilized and democratic process. Live and let live, right? Well, Ava doesn't want to watch something animated. And Harper and Chambly insist on animation, but they cannot come to terms about what animated feature film they'd like. And Hudson's just disgruntled that we're using the remote control to control the television because he thinks it goes in his mouth. 
right? And we haven't even gotten to mom and dad's preferences to throw them onto the table yet. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Ava can't live without Harper's living being, being hampered, right? And Harper can't without Chambly's and Hudson can't without mine and all of those sorts of things because our lives all touch everybody else's life. That's why you can't do live and let live. It doesn't work. It's these competing aims and desires that cause the kinds of conditions in which we sin against one another, correct? Harper wants this, Chambly wants that. They're unable to come to terms peacefully, so violence breaks out, and now the family movie night has become its own dramatic production. You're probably familiar with these dynamics in your home. And these dynamics, of course, can cause suffering, but not the kind that Peter is talking about. Peter's speaking about the kind of suffering that is the result of doing good in the face of evil. It's preaching the gospel to a hostile people. It's speaking truth when the truth will get you in trouble. It's not apologizing when you didn't do anything wrong, even though your apology would smooth things over and end the suffering. Peter's not saying that all of our suffering is connected to Jesus' suffering, although there's a sense in which it is, in that Jesus bought our glorification and the inhabitants of a world in which suffering will cease. But what he's saying here is that our suffering for righteousness is connected to Jesus' suffering. But as this point becomes clear to us, the relevance of Peter's letter may become opaque. See, as long as we're talking about suffering broadly, everybody leans in and listens up because, as has been well said, pain is the universal language. Everybody knows suffering to one degree or another. And so when you begin to speak about it publicly and people think that maybe you have something insightful to say about it, everyone's interested in the topic of suffering. If we're talking about why bad things happen to good people or how to overcome bitterness when someone hurts you or navigating the consequences of your own sin, if that's how we're coming at suffering, we're all ears because we've all got a framework for that that makes the relevance of that topic immediately apparent to us. But once we narrow the scope, as Peter does, focusing just on that suffering which will be endured as a result of our faithfulness, sadly, many of us lean back thinking, well, if that's the kind of suffering he's talking about, then that suffering doesn't apply to me. I've suffered the consequences of my own sin. I've suffered some physical maladies. I've suffered from someone else sinning against me. But I've not suffered specifically because I was faithful to God. But that's the connection that Peter wants you and I to be able to make between our suffering and Christ's. Suffering. That is, when we suffer, it should often be for the same reason that Christ did. Because he was obedient to his father in the midst of a world who's bent on disobedience. Now, there are times when, depending on your cultural setting and location on the timeline, it may be reasonable to assume that you could live your life faithful to Christ, proclaiming his lordship, confronting sin, and uncompromisingly following Christ, and be celebrated for that rather than being castigated for it. But that's not our setting or location on the timeline, is it? In modern American society, faithfulness to Christ is infidelity to our society and its values. Living for and speaking of Christ explicitly is to make, or excuse me, is to take the express route to friction. I'm not saying that we should make it a point to be offensive or take pride in how many people dislike us. 
But I am saying that if you never offend anyone and everybody likes you, you're probably not being faithful to Christ. In fact, you're probably insulating yourself from the suffering of Christ by avoiding the faithfulness that leads to it. We live in a time in which it's controversial to say sodomy is sin and abortion is murder in some churches, much less in the coffee shops of Winston-Salem. So again, if you haven't suffered for doing good and speaking truth in this cultural climate, it's probably because you aren't doing much good or speaking much truth. But to these Christians who are suffering because of their faithfulness to God, Peter says, What a wonderful honor it is to be empowered by the Spirit to live as Christ lived faithfully and to suffer as Christ suffered because of that faithfulness. Now, having established those things, we also have to understand that the apostles had the Great Commission ringing in their ears. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These instructions informed everything that they did, said, and wrote. It had to. It was the mission given to them by their Lord, such that they can't even suffer or write to sufferers without seeing that suffering through the lens of that commission. They were tasked with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth to bring people to God. Now, what did our text tell us about Jesus' suffering? For Christ also suffered Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God. And the apostles expected that they would suffer bringing people to God. That's the connection that Peter is establishing in our text. Jesus' suffering accomplished something. It brought us to God. And Peter's telling us that our suffering is also supposed to accomplish something. That is, it's supposed to bring people to God. Why did Peter tell Christian subjects of Rome, Christian slaves of unjust masters, and Christian wives of unbelieving husbands to submit to injustices rather than kicking and screaming and fighting and reviling? Why? To accomplish 1 Peter 2.12. To keep their conduct among non-believers honorable so that when they spoke against them as evildoers, they could see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what Peter's saying. Your patient and composed suffering is intended to bring people to God. That's why Peter encourages them with the example of Christ. Because Christ is the prototype which validates Peter's expectation that this is going to work. Jesus suffered to bring us to God, and he has ordained that we will suffer bringing people to God. The fact of this is borne out over and over and over again throughout church history, isn't it? Christ suffered to bring us to God. We will suffer bringing people to God. You take the gospel to the godless, and you'll rarely be praised by them for it. It usually fuels their persecution before it ever leads to their conversion. These are just historical realities that can be quite easily traced out. Again, church history is replete with testimonies to this fact. But one example that did come to my mind as I worked with this text this week was the life and death of a man named John Rogers, the first of the Protestants to be killed by Queen Mary during the Reformation. He was arrested for a sermon that he preached wherein he proclaimed salvation by grace through faith. 
and condemned a host of Roman Catholic doctrines that added to the gospel. He was put in prison for over a year, not even allowed visitation by his pregnant wife and ten children, soon to be eleven. During his imprisonment, the English Parliament passed a law that upgraded the penalty for heresy from prison to death. When the sheriff came to get Rogers from his cell to take him to his execution, he asked him, will you now revoke your evil opinion of the mass? Like you've heard the sentence that's handed down. You know what's going on. Are you ready now to recant? Like you've made your little statement. You've taken your little stand. You've suffered your time. Like you'll be a respectable enough person if you leave after a year long prison sentence. Okay, can we just call this done or do we actually have to kill you? Rogers responds, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The sheriff responded, then you, sir, are a heretic. <laughs> Roger said, that shall be made known at the last day, at the judgment. You see what he's doing? He's entrusting himself to him who judges justly, not to the judgment of men. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. It's playing out in front of us. Listen to the sheriff's childish reply. He said, well, I will never pray for you, which if you believe in purgatory is in fact quite a substantive thing to have said. I will never pray for you. Rogers responds, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. So on February 4th, 1555, Rogers is led through the streets of Smithfield, England to the stake where he'll be burned alive. He walks past his church members. They're cheering him on. He walks past his ten children and his wife who's holding the daughter that he was never permitted to meet. And there was a French ambassador who was present in the crowd who wrote this about the scene. Even his children assisted at encouraging him comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if he was being led to a wedding and not to the stake. John Rogers and the 299 roughly martyrs who subsequently shared his fate, being burned at the stake, understood that just as Christ suffered bringing people to God, so we will suffer if we set about the same work. Peter's message here then is wholly consistent even with Paul's description of apostolic ministry. Remember how Paul talks about his ministry in 1 Corinthians 4? This is verses 11 through 13. To the present hour, we, the apostles, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, all they had to do to reverse their condition was stop spreading the gospel and making disciples of Christ. And the comfort that they knew prior to having taken up that office could have been returned to them. That's all they had to do. Just stop it. Just knock, knock off the preaching. You'll be fine. But Jesus suffered to bring us to God. And they knew that they would suffer bringing people to God. Now what's more, all of us know that too. We knew it before I ever stated it succinctly. Which is why we do so little to bring people to God in the first place, isn't it? 
because we all instinctively knew that truth before it was ever explicitly stated. We know the inconvenience that it is, the relationships it could harm, the compromising situations it could put us in. So we simply close our mouths and put our heads down and hope that one magical day someone may ask us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So long as that question is not prompted by us having had to endure suffering, which made them wonder why we were so hopeful. So long as they're asking us about our hope because of how comfortable we are and we manage to have a smile on while everything is good. You've probably heard the saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That was Tertullian's observation about the proliferation of Christianity during Roman persecution. They couldn't kill Christians as quickly as the Holy Spirit churned out new batches of them as their courage and gentleness and grace were put on display because they cared more about bringing people to God eternally than they did about living temporally. One of those things was dramatically more important to them and it affected the way that they lived, namely the way that they went to their deaths. We've seen the same thing all over the world, haven't we? That's why the Chinese church is growing rapidly in the face of persecution as the American church has declined in an embrace of comfort these last 60 years or so. So ultimately, we're free to pray that we might not see acute suffering as we bring people to God. But we are not permitted to avoid bringing people to God so that we do not suffer. So what we must do is search our hearts and let the Lord reveal if there be any grievous way in us in this regard. Are there conversations that we're avoiding? Are there opportunities that we are routinely walking by? Precisely because we know that faithfulness to God in this regard means suffering in some way, shape, or form. And I'm simply unwilling to endure that suffering. Now, I know what we like to do. We like to put things in a separate category. We like to try to put those things in the category of um, I'm being a tactician. It's not a matter of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. It's a, it's a matter of tactics. And it could be that the timing's not right, or it could be that uh, maybe I just need to wrap my head around how to have that conversation. Or, you know, like I do have to think about the ripple effect of these things on my, my family and all of those sorts of things. And so, like, I get it. You need to calculate all of those things. But you need to calculate all those things so that you're suffering with your eyes wide open. That's why you calculate it. That's what John Rogers did. Why are you a Protestant right now? Why do you know the gospel right now? Because somebody counted that cost and said, somebody else is going to raise my kids. But the name of Christ must be made known. Somebody else is going to have to care for my wife, but Christ must be made known. And here's us. It could put me in a compromising financial situation if I were to open my mouth right now in this particular situation. And that could be something where my boss talks to me afterwards and I just don't know if I can take that risk right. What are we doing? What are we doing? Christ suffered to bring people to God. And we need to come to the point where we have an expectation that we will suffer bringing people to God. It is how he has ordained that it take place. We don't have to love that yet. We don't have to give that a bear hug yet. But we are not permitted to be disobedient because we're trying to hold at bay that which God tells us over and over and over to expect in his word. Let's pray.